So um, there was a movie trilogy that came out in the 80s and early, early 90s, back when I was in middle school, high school, um, Back to the Future. Everyone, I'm guessing, has seen it. If you're under 30, you might need to go home and rent it and, or just turn on TBS because it'll be on today or tomorrow, I'm sure. But you should watch the movie. And the whole movie is based off Marty McFly and his good friend, Doc Brown. And Doc invents a time machine. In the first one, they go back to 1955 and um, get to, to ex- live and experience life there. And then Marty gets stuck and has to get back to 1985. He gets back to 1985. And then they go forward to 2015. And when they go to 2015, which they had gone there to fix a problem, they inadvertently create a problem back in 1985. If you remember, Marty, pretty close to the scene, buys a sports almanac, and his goal is to go back into the past and place some bets based on the sports almanac and make some money. And if you've seen the movie, it falls into the wrong hands. Biff gets it. And what happens is it creates an alternate 1985, kind of this crazy world where Biff is the mayor of the city, married to Marty's mom, and Marty's dad, George McFly, is dead. And as I was thinking about it, I was watching it for the 2,000th time. Um, as I was thinking about it the other day, does your, your tie make music this year? Good. Thank you, Trish. Sorry. Random thoughts from last year. <laughs> you can see. But they created this alternate 1985 by accident. And if you think about it, one bad decision created a world that no one, really other than Biff, wanted to be a part of. This crazy world that was created by a choice. And I was thinking, isn't it interesting how often our worlds are recreated by the choices we make? They're recreated by choices other people make that affect us. And as we sit here with the prophet Isaiah, you need to understand this about the prophets. Typically, we think of a prophet as someone who is able to tell the future, almost like a fortune teller. But that was not what a biblical prophet was. The role of a biblical prophet was to look and see what God is doing in the world and call people to that way. But also to speak and say, hey, I've got to warn you. If you continue down this road, if you continue down this path, there are bad things that are going to come. And so that's what Isaiah is doing here in the life of these four kings that we talked about last week, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He's going to these kings, to the people of Judah, and he's saying, listen, I know you think you have it figured out. I know you think everything's okay. But if you continue down this path, there are going to be problems. 
And really the first part of Isaiah centers around the rule of King Ahaz, who Scripture tells us was a very bad king. And what happens in these first 12 chapters is Isaiah is giving the people of Judah these words of judgment, but also words of hope. Words of judgment. This is coming if you continue down this path. But words of hope in the sense that if you turn and you find God and you find what God is doing and join Him, then blessing is going to come. So, so why is there judgment? What we've been saying through this series is for the idolatry and the injustice of the nation of Judah. For their continual rebellion, turning to other gods, following and worshiping them, and then the injustice of its leaders. Their inability and unconcern, if that's a word, unconcern, it is now, for the people who are poor, oppressed, widowed, orphans. So where's the hope in it? The hope is, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. In spite of all Israel, all of Judah's unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. And as we said last week, the nation of Assyria is bearing down. They began to the north in the nation of Israel, conquering these cities, taking over Samaria. They've now moved down south into the nation of Judah, and they are knocking on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And there is fear, because it feels like their walls are beginning to, to collapse. They're starting to suffocate as this nation begins to endanger them and scare them, because they don't know what is coming. And these are the natural consequences that followed Judah's disobedience. And as we said, Ahaz is king, and he's been leading this nation completely the wrong direction. It says this in 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, and he made idols worshiping the bells. He burned sacrifices in the valley, valley of Ben-Hinnom Hin, and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt offering, burnt incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. So this is King Ahaz. He completely led the people away from God. And the question I want to deal with this morning is so, so, so important. And simply the question, who is your king? Who is your king? Who is your king? Because Samuel and the prophets told Israel, there's going to be a problem if you put a king on the throne. Not only are you rejecting me, he's going to make your life very difficult because his greatest concern is not going to be you. It's going to be himself and his kingdom. 
don't go down this road. And yet they do. They have a king. And like we said last week, Saul was okay. David was the king that all kings would want to be like. The one that they cheered on, that they loved Solomon for the early part of his reign. And then it kind of starts to go downhill. And what the prophets predicted starts to play out day after day. Who's your king? Who's your king? Because I think Israel would say, well, it's David. David's our king. He's the king we want all other kings to be like. He's the king that we want on the throne. But here's the deal. Regardless, regardless of how great they were as kings, their primary goal was not to build God's kingdom. It was to build theirs. It was to build their kingdom. And that was not Israel. That was not Judah's divine vocation. Their job, their priority was to build the kingdom of God. To be this holy nation that was set apart and to represent God to the world. That was their primary goal. And it makes me wonder, is it possible to spend our whole life working and laboring to build a kingdom besides God's kingdom? Is it possible to spend your whole life working to build another kingdom and be completely unaware of it? Maybe our greatest fear should be being successful at building a kingdom that will not last. Maybe our greatest fear should be the fear of building a kingdom that will not last, that will not stand the test of time. Because these words for Isaiah are words of hope, but they are full of God's judgment. I guess we could say it's words of judgment sprinkled with words of hope. And God has a solution. It's not get this right and then God will act on your behalf. Get things in order, get things right, and then God will show up. Instead, it's God is going to show up and act because you cannot get this right. God's not going to say, I'm done with them, I'm washing my hands with them, I'm banishing them, I want nothing to do with them. Instead, He's going to come right into the middle of their world as a light dawning in the darkness. And these are the words that are full of hope. But as I said, there's so many words full of God's judgment. Here at the end of chapter 10, starting in verse 33, it says this, See, 
The Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe, and Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. What's God going to do? God's going to come down, and he is going to use Assyria as that axe. He's going to use Babylon as that axe. And he is going to completely decimate this Davidic dynasty that they put so much hope in. And he keeps using this analogy, these forests that have been cut down, these stumps everywhere, and all you can see. And it's with those words, with this forest that's been cut down, that he tells what's going to happen, but also what's going to continue to happen. This past summer, my family and I, we took a trip to Colorado, to Breckenridge for the summer, for a week. And then you, as you're on your way, um, if you've driven this before, you go through New Mexico, and it's this vast desert wasteland of nothing as far as you can see. And then you turn north and you head on into Colorado. And now there are mountains and trees everywhere. It's just like there's a line and it's just like ugly, terrible, beautiful. Right? Could you imagine going all that way to Colorado and you get there and you cross the state line and all you see is these trees that have been cut down? There's no forest. All you see is stumps. As far as the eye can see. I would imagine there would be disappointment. There would be anger. There would be frustration. There would be fear. But then off in the distance, you see just a small little green branch popping up. Here's what he says in chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Go, go back to, to one. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is David's father. King David's father. And he says, from this line, there's going to come that little green shoot out of this forest of stumps. And all you see is this vast wasteland. There's going to be this green shoot popping up. And as I said, it would be despair, it would be frustration, but there's also some hope with it. There's hope that there is new life beginning there. That God is doing something new. The frustration is, have you ever seen how long it takes a small shoot to actually become a tree? It does not happen overnight. There will be waiting. And as Isaiah is saying, you've made this bed for yourself. You're going to be forced to lie in it. Remember, if you continue down this road, here's how things are going to go, and that's where they are. And Assyria is pressing in from all sides, and it seems like despair is everywhere. 
And it's into this that Isaiah speaks these words of hope. The stump, the shoot will come up from the stump, from the root of Jesse. Why, why Jesse? It's almost as if Isaiah is st- saying, <clears throat> excuse me, God is starting over. Right? David was the greatest king our nation has ever known. And Jesse is going to have a new son. God is going to do something new. And this branch, this new branch will bear fruit. But how is this king going to be different from all the other kings in their past? I mean, just start naming them. There was problems with them. Even the ones who were good, they made mistakes. How is this king going to be different? And here's how it's going to be different. Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There, There is coming this king, and he is going to be filled with the Spirit of God. And God's Spirit is going to allow him to lead with wisdom and counsel and might and strength like no other king. What's going to be different? God's going to pour out his Spirit into this new king. And this king will be the blessing to this earth that was promised in Genesis 12. The one who would be a blessing to all people. He would do that through the Spirit of God at work in him. That is how this king will be different. And then he goes into this section of judgment. This section that that really kind of challenges what the people have done because they've oppressed people. And, And just to get a glimpse of how Ahaz and his world, the world he's created by his decisions, has made. Here's what Isaiah says in chapter 10, verse 1. You can go back, Marshall. Thank you. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. Woe to the deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making the widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What, what have they done? They've completely created an unjust world where people who couldn't take care of themselves weren't taken care of. The poor were poorer. The oppressed were oppressed more and more and more. It was an unjust world. And he says God's judgment is going to come for those people because God is concerned about them. God hears them. God cares about them. God loves them. And from there he goes on to talk about this incredible day of peace. A day of peace when things are made right. And I want you to listen to the picture that Isaiah creates. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leper, the leopard will lie down with the great, with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. 
and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and as the waters covers the sea. He speaks of a world where animals now live at peace together. Because, I mean, think about now, right? What happens if a lamb decided to go lie down with a lion? Lunch. That, that doesn't happen. So, so is what Isaiah is saying is there is a day coming when animals are going to stop acting like animals. Where beasts stop acting like beasts. Or, or is it possible Isaiah has something else in mind? Is it possible Isaiah is not talking about literal, literal lions and leopards and snakes? Is it possible that there's something else that he is thinking about? Back in 1973, Disney put out a movie called Robin Hood. It was an animated classic. I'm sure many of you have seen it. But one of the things that was really popular and I think just brilliant in the way they designed this movie was they used a literary device called anthropomorphism. And it is a literary device that compares or represents human characteristics or behaviors to animals or objects. And so in the, the movie, go back to the movie scene. You have Robin, who is this cunning fox who's looking out for the poor and the oppressed. He's quick-witted. You have little John, who is this noble friend represented as a bear. Um, not pictured is um, King Richard, who is this big lion with a massive mane, very noble. But then you have his brother, this deceitful, um, scra scraggly lion with no mane um, named Prince John. And then you have his advisor, the snake, King Hiss. And these characters represent characteristics and traits of the actual character. Their behaviors. We, we do and use these a lot in our culture as well, right? You, you've heard these sayings before, wise as an owl, strong as an ox, stubborn as a big as an elephant, blind as a, if you're a baseball fan, umpire. <laughs> Sorry. Busy as a Gentle as a... And these characteristics represent something about the behavior and character of the person. So let's hit rewind. And let's go back to verse 6 of Isaiah 11. The wolf 
will live with a lamb. What happened the last time? A lamb laid down with a wolf. They hung him on a cross. The leopard will lie down with a goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. Verse 7. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. Verse 8. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What Isaiah is trying to say is not there is a day coming when animals will stop acting like animals and beasts will stop acting like beasts. That's not a problem. That is what they were created to do. That is how they were created to behave. The problem is when people act like beasts. When people devour the poor and the oppressed. When people aren't concerned with other people. And they use them as a stepping stone to get more power. That is the problem. And that is the world that Judah and King Ahaz have created. Ultimately, what Isaiah wants us to grasp is this formative question. Who is your king? Who is your king? Who is the one that you will serve? Who is the one that you will give your life to? Is it the one that's concerned about their kingdom and their power and their fame? Or is it the one who's concerned about the least of these? Who's concerned about the poor and the oppressed? Because what Isaiah wants us to see ultimately through his prophecy is this tale of two cities. There's old Jerusalem and there's new Jerusalem. There's old Jerusalem where it's build your kingdom and it's built on idolatry and injustice and rebellion and power and control and revenge and greed and do for yourself but then there's New Jerusalem. It's focused on building His kingdom. It's a kingdom of faith, hope, and love. A kingdom built on grace and mercy and forgiveness. Built by humility and compassion and do for others. Isaiah calls it two different cities. The writer of Proverbs calls it wisdom and folly. Jesus calls it two roads or two houses. Two foundations. And here's the crazy thing. Is God lets 
you and I choose. He lets you choose. Old Jerusalem or new Jerusalem? Wisdom or folly? The the wide road or the narrow road? The solid foundation or the weak one? You get to choose. Ahaz, you get the choice here who you're going to follow. And Hezekiah, a great king who's going to lead the people back, bring them back into the temple, find the law, is going to be this great king. Even he loses sight and makes the wrong choice. Because after he has restored things and there's prosperity in the land, Assyria is still pressing in on them. And he goes and he makes a deal with Babylon and says, hey, you come and protect us and we'll serve you and we'll partner together. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, he says, don't do it. It will be bad news because eventually they will, become, they will make you their slaves and they will leave you as exiles. And Hezekiah doesn't listen. He makes a deal with Babylon and things go really well at first because they have protection from Assyria and Assyria does not wipe out Jerusalem. But a hundred years down the road, Babylon turns on Judah, destroys Jerusalem, and leaves the people of Judah as exiles. Like we want that rewind button so much. If we could just go back and not have done what we did, if we could have made a different choice, if we could have pursued God better, then things wouldn't have turned out this way. But they did. And just like Judah finds themselves living with the consequences of their choices and of their decisions, you and I have to live every single day with the consequences of ours. But like I said, the beauty is that God gives you a choice. Isn't that amazing? After all of these years, you still get to choose today. I mean, remember back to the garden. And people will argue all the time, well, did the garden happen exactly like this, this, this? The point of the garden is not that it happened exactly this way. The point of the garden is that it happens exactly that way every single day. That every single day you get a choice to follow God or not. And yet in spite of our poor decisions, in spite of our inabilities to remain faithful and obedient to God, He still loves and pursues us. He is truly God with us. And Joseph gets to make a choice. And his choice is going to be to divorce 
his wife Mary to kind of put her away. But then the prophet, an angel, comes to Joseph and says this in chapter 1. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's promise is his presence. In spite of our choices, in spite of our decisions, he promises to come and dwell with his people, to pursue them. And every single day, you have the opportunity to choose again who you will follow. No matter who you chose yesterday, you get to choose Jesus again today. You get to choose again. My question, do you believe that the kingdom he is building is greater than anything you could possibly build? Because we spend a lot of energy a lot of time pursuing and building things that will not last. I spend a lot of time building and pursuing things that will not last. And today, today, we choose again to follow King Jesus. Father, we thank you God, we're grateful for your grace, your love, your mercy. And Father, we are truly sorry for the times that we have acted as lions and wolves and snakes. Times that we have not looked out for the poor and the oppressed, the widows, the orphans. We're sorry for the times that we've tried to build our own kingdom instead of yours. Father, we're sorry for the times that we've rebelled. But Father, we are so grateful that each day we wake up, we have a new choice. To simply ask, who will be our king? Who will we follow? Who will we serve? And Father, today may we once again proclaim, it is you, King Jesus. Thank you for coming to dwell with us. Thank you for sending your spirit to guide us and to give us wisdom and counsel. Father, we thank you. We praise you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.